I love talking to friends of mine after they've just published a book because it's a chance for them to kind of step back and bask a little bit. And honestly, like the people I know who are writing books, they tend to be focused on very minute details of this chapter or that reference. And it's, you know, necessary, beautiful work, but it's a bit of a grind. And they tend not to be very um, chatty about the big picture because it distracts them. They, they've got the big picture and now they're like, okay, let me just focus and write each page and get this done. Then when the book comes out, very often they're able to relax and they're getting a lot of media attention and, and interviews and they get to step back and look at the book and say, oh, so that's what I think. <laughs> and you kind of don't know what you think until you write the book and rewrite the book and rewrite the book again. And so today I'm thrilled to share the uh, kind of the meeting of author and book. Uh, my friend Michelle Johnston, who is a, a professor at Loyola University and a stellar business coach and one of the pillars of the New Orleans business community. And her book is called The Seismic Shift in Leadership. And she talks about how being a leader now for, for particular historical, cultural, sociological reasons requires an entirely different mindset, outlook and skill set than what we've typically thought of as leadership. So in our conversation, we go into what the shift is, how people can get there. Um, we talk a lot about her own story and journey of seeing both positive and negative models of leadership and having to discover how to adopt something that worked for her. And I think even if you're not in an organization, even if you don't consider yourself a leader, this is really about being a leader in life, a leader of yourself, a leader when you are called, when there is a gap in leadership. And when we look around the world and we see the world moving in such crazy directions away from environmental protection towards fascism, uh, away from human kindness and connection, that's a gap in leadership. And any and all of us um, can step up at any moment and begin to fill it. And Michelle kind of gives us a, a roadmap and the courage to do so. So let's get to it without further ado. Dr. Michelle Johnston, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Howie. I was really looking forward to being here and having this conversation with you. Yeah. So, you know, it's always good to talk to you, but it's not, it's even better to have an excuse like your best selling book. Um, and, you know, this this is a semi professional audience. Like there's a lot of people here who are doing good work in the world, in organizations and on teams. But a lot of us are just looking to be better leaders in our own lives, in our families, in our communities, in whatever ways we are. And your book the seismic shift in leadership is really a manual for it's I, I think of it like a detox for for those of us who grew up thinking of leadership as one way of being or something that was really just for a special group of people. And so that's that's kind of where I want, want to get into in our conversation. I love how you just framed it. Nobody ever framed it as a detox. I love that. And it is so true that that's what the seismic shift is about, right? Is, is truly understanding that the old ways of what so many of us thought leadership looked like, sounded like, felt like, 
and, and how to be successful, those, those ways are just no longer effective. And it's much more about true, meaningful connection because at the end of the day, Howie, you and I both know that what really drives results is connection. Connection drives results. Yep. So before we get into the content, I would love for you to tell folks a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's, 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 let's practice what we preach and uh, give you a chance to connect with, with the audience. Um, who, who are you? Where did you come great. from? And what do you care about? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm Michelle Johnston and I was born in Alexandria, Virginia to a family, uh, my mom and dad and older brother and my dad got a really great job early. I mean, I think he was maybe 22 years old with General Motors and he grabbed on tightly and they saw great potential in him. And so back in the day, and this was in the 70s and the 80s, when you were really good at your job, big companies like that, and they, when they promoted you, they transferred you. So I was a, a, a corporate brat and moved around every two years from Alexandria, Virginia to um, Baltimore, Maryland, East Brunswick, New Jersey, Detroit, Michigan, Nashville, Tennessee, Tampa, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, Atlanta, Georgia, and they just kept on moving. And so I grew up in, in every two years, you know, going to new schools and meeting new friends and really enjoying getting to know different cultures. And so that's what kind of sparked my interest in leadership and communication and culture early on, just listening to my dad every night over dinner, talking about how he led his teams, how he motivated his teams, and, and also just being fascinated by people's stories. So um, my grandfather was a PhD at Georgetown and for some reason took a liking to me as his grandkid who decided that I should be the one to get a PhD. And I kind of went kicking and screaming, Howie. At, at the time, I had just finished my master's from Auburn, and he kept he was on a letter-writing campaign, my granddad was, and said, you know, you need to get a PhD. You know, Michelle, you need to get a PhD. So I ended up, and again, that was, a, I'm really glad he pushed me. I can't imagine I would have done it. And I, I received my PhD in communication from LSU, and then that's when I really started this journey um, as a management professor, uh, leadership coach and ultimately an author on leadership. Wow. So um, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm just curious um, in this moment, um, when your dad shared his leadership stories, was he a seismic shift kind of guy or more of an old school or something in the middle? Like what were the lessons you learned from him about leadership at that point? That's a great question, Howie. And I don't think I really understood how influential my father's leadership was on my life until I was standing at my book launch party. And here I just written an entire book on the seismic shift and how that old command and control authoritarian was no longer effective. And I'm staring at the audience and completely not, you know, not rehearsed. I, I realized that that I needed to dedicate the book to my father because my father is the opposite of the command and control. He always led people first. He led with, with beautiful motivation and enthusiasm and, and commitment and compassion. He was just a fantastic leader and he was really ahead of his time. And working for General Motors, which was very hierarchical, very old school command and control and somehow he did it differently, and I continue to be impressed. He and I are still very close to this day. Wow. So, that, I mean, that raises the question, like, 
is it really a shift in leadership? Like, was there, like, has, has leadership always been what you describe? And there was this sort of, you know, I don't know, couple millennium blip in terms of like command and control power. And like, there have always been people like your dad or like, maybe he would have become, you know, the CEO if he had been different. Like, how do you see the history of, of these two different um, conflicting in some way styles of leadership? Yeah, I think for about a hundred years, it was very, the hierarchical command and control was definitely the norm. And I think my father was a true anomaly. And now what I'm seeing as an executive coach is people with my father's personalities are the ones that are truly getting to the top where my father was put in sales and marketing because he cared so much about people and was such a positive person that they didn't know what to do with him, but put him in sales and marketing where he was really good. Whereas everybody else, we ended up in an executive office. And let me tell you, the others in executive office, you know, were much more of, of just rigid and, and micromanagers and controlling. So the seismic shift, and, and I think the millennials did prompt this. I remember in about the year 2003, I started a, an executive mentor program at Loyola. And I went and recruited and enlisted this great force, this team of very successful business professionals here in New Orleans to mentor our business students. And that was when I first started hearing about from these high level leaders and they would give my, you know, our students internships and they would call me and say, Michelle, what is wrong with this new generation? They, they want to leave for yoga. They want something called balance in their lives. It's work because it's work and play is play. And what in the world? This is crazy. And I remember at that time I was subscribing to the command and control. I didn't think that I could be successful leading like my father, which is really interesting because I looked around the College of Business and in academia, academia is very much old school command and control, at least at that time. Professors came in, they had gone to get their PhDs to fill, to, to be true experts in their field. And they marched into the classroom and lectured on hours with a piece of chalk. And there was very little two-way connection. It was very one-way. And you were the expert. And so I think with technology, you asked about kind of the history. I think with, with the advances in technology, all of a sudden we have younger individuals who could have access to information. We, the older generation, didn't have all the answers. So there, we, you had to adapt to that. And then I think the millennials saw their parents as, as committing their entire lives to these companies that really did not do, do them well. You know, uh, I mean, my father ended up retiring from General Motors with a parachute package and did really, really well. But these millennials saw a lot of their parents going to lose their jobs and they think, and they thought, I don't want to work like that. Even to this day, Howie, um, I taught in Rome this summer and we were talking about the, my students at Loyola, we were talking about the effects of a negative boss, a jerk boss and mm. how those effects bleed into the family. And I asked my students to raise their hands, how many of them grew up and, and a negative boss affected their family and 90% of their hands raised. So, I mean, there, you know, we still have jerk bosses, but I do think the the historical context of this situation is the millennials pushed the envelope and said, I don't want to live like my parents did. I want mm. more. And then you, 
advance that. And then you have the pandemic. And now we're all coming out of it saying, why can't we have positive workspaces? Why can't we be happy and have friends at work? A la Morag Barrett, who just had her book launched today. Uh, me, we, what is it? You, me, and we, how to be an ally at work. We want better work environments. And that's where we are now. And that's the seismic shift. You can be a leader who cares about your people and gets the results that you need. Mm-hmm. So you, you tell a lot of stories in the book, mostly from, you know, New Orleans um, leaders. And you also tell on yourself. Right. Um, that there were there. You mentioned like you came into academia as command and control, even with the the uh, the model of your father as as a counterexample. Is it because you're a woman and you felt like a woman has to act like if, if you if you act like in a caring, compassionate way, you're just going to get ignored or stepped on? I think it was I was 28 years old. I was young. I was female. And what's, and, and it was the industry that I was in. So then I was in academia and I looked around and the rock star professors in academia were mostly older men who really employed this command and control style. And so they were my mentors and we would go out to lunch and they would say, Michelle, you got to march into the classroom and slam the door and lock it. And if anybody's late, they can't get in and they miss out. Michelle, when they turn in papers and there's misspelling, fail them, fail them. Um, so they were pretty severe, and yet they received faculty member of the year awards and students loved them. And so I looked around and because of my upbringing, I was really good at fitting in. I learned uh. how to assess a situation and fit in. So I had come from a consulting firm my entire 20s. I had worked for a consulting firm in New Orleans, which is why I'm in New Orleans. They recruited me in my master's program, and I loved it. It was communication consulting. Kitty Watson worked at Tulane as a professor in communication. Larry Barker, who's now deceased, he was a professor at Auburn. And they were amazing, and I I felt completely allowed to be myself in the consulting context. But when I pivoted to academia, I didn't see that as a way to be successful. Mm. So I hid pieces and parts of myself and pretended that I wasn't as positive and enthusiastic and as feminine as I naturally am in order to try to be successful. And guess what? We all know the end of that story. It didn't work. I mean, I literally could have um, I almost failed as a professor because I just was trying to be somebody who was so not me. Hmm. Do you think that had that been your natural style, you could have made it work? Absolutely. I think I would have been amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's what I discovered in all my research, Howie. People pick up on it when you're when you're being fake. So Hmm. I would march into the classroom and in my head I was doing what all of my mentors told me to do. And yet I knew in my heart that's not who I was. And so then my students, you know, it's a, you know, New Orleans is not a huge metropolis. I would see them out and about or in the park or at the grocery store. And I was me. And there was this disconnect. Like, why in the world is this person showing up in the classroom totally mean? Right. And so they don't like that. I, you know, I wasn't connected with myself because I didn't think I could be successful being myself. But when I finally gave myself permission, you know, come in, march into the classroom and do what you know from the consulting world. 
do what you know works, which is experiential education, role play, interaction, inclusivity, all the things that I knew that I had pushed aside trying to fit into the old school model. So I think that's why I, well, I know for a fact, Howie, that's why I ended up writing the book, not just because I was seeing in my coaching practice leaders getting forced out of organizations who were also command and control. I realized that had been me and I had been so close to failing that I wanted, I was on a mission and I wanted to help people connect better with themselves so that they can connect with their teams so that they can be successful in their companies. Mm. So something that, that feels a little bit wiggly to me is when you talk about like not being fake and your experience growing up of having to fit in, like on, on one sense, you being a chameleon is very authentic. On the other hand, it can turn out fake. Like how do you navigate that? Yeah, I would hear that growing up and I didn't understand what these girls would talk about, especially during the middle school years when that's really tough with girls. And they would say, oh, you're fake. You're fake. And I remember thinking, no, I'm being totally me. But yet you're right. I had gotten so good at adapting that I was being authentically a chameleon. I was authentically a chameleon, right? Um, and so I didn't really understand. And it wasn't until I read Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And I literally cried when I read that book because mm. I realized she said the opposite of belonging is trying to fit in. And mm. you can never truly feel like you belong when all you're doing is trying to fit in. And boy, that got my attention because it had caught up with me, Howie. Think about that. I had, I had succeeded growing up as a kid, but all of a sudden I'm in my profession and it's not working because it caught up with me. I'm trying to be somebody I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm coming across as fake, right? And then I had to really, really spend time with myself and reflect what was I hiding? Why hadn't I owned my story? Who was I? And I realized I'd been so self-conscious that I didn't feel like I had a home. People would say, oh, where are you from? Because everybody wants to know, where are you from? So they can put you in a category. Are you a Northeast girl, a Northern Midwest? Are you from Florida? Mm -hmm. Are you Southern? And I didn't know where I was from because I wasn't from anywhere. And I struggled with that answer. So because I struggled with that, I ended up hiding that part of myself. Because I had hid that part of myself, people weren't feeling connected to me because I wasn't showing up. I didn't know what in the heck my story was. So I had to work really hard on that. And now when people ask me, I rehearsed it enough. I say, yeah, I grew up a corporate brat moving all over the country. And, and there are good sides to that and bad sides to that. I really loved learning about different cultures. And then on the other side of the coin, it took me a little bit while, you know, to figure out who I was. And now mm. I, I come clean with that, you know, and I'm, I'm very upfront with that. Whereas before I just hit it. Yeah, and I think, you know, you have a very extreme example of sort of putting on masks to fit in, but all of us do it, right? Like fitting, you know, I, I don't know anyone who, who grew up feeling like they totally belonged kind of anyway, maybe in their, in their immediate family, maybe in a church community, but even so, like even the best parents are like, you know, don't do that. Change this. Like we grow up very sensitive to who do the people important to me need me to be. And we can bring that into adulthood. And I think leadership you know, is a great opportunity to kind of undo 
a lot of the psychic knots we've tied ourselves in to say, like, you know, the first the first section of your book is own your story, meaning not when I first read that sentence, I thought it was like, you know, your narrative, your brand, like sort of craft something. But you're saying the exact opposite, like warts and all take take it all, own it all. And you'll be surprised at how people respond well to that when they sense your your self-acceptance and vulnerability. Bingo. Absolutely. So, yeah, I remember I was a big fan of Tom Peters and he wrote a book, The Brand Called You. Mm. And I loved that. And, and when I ran the executive mentor program, I mentored all of my students. You've got to, you know, you've got to have a brand and you got to, you know, be this professional corporate person. And then I realized that, that, and this also goes back to the Gallup polls and the strengths finder, that if we focus more on people's strengths, and make sure we put them in a place where they can excel and shine. Well, that you do a whole lot more good than if you just focus on what they're not doing and continue to try to write badger them in how to how to fix that that thing that's not where they're not fitting in. So I also followed Ben Zander had a book, The Art of Possibility, and I'll never forget his story. He was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, and he struggled connecting with his his musicians because he was so command and control and he would really, you know, he would point out to, to everybody if you made a mistake and, and created this culture of fear and, and, and he realized, wait a second, this is not working. Why don't I look at my, he was also a teacher. Why don't I look at my, my orchestra of musicians or my class of musicians as a students, no matter what, and see it as my job that if they fall a little bit below A, it's my job to get them to an A because they are all gifted musicians rather than looking mm. for the bad and the mistakes. And that shift, that seismic shift changed the way that, that I taught because that was, that was much more my personality. I wanted to walk into the classroom and walk into my coaching practice and be able to say, I see you. I see your gifts. Now let's bring your gifts out and make sure you can use them and make sure you're in the best position that will capitalize on them. And, and I think that again, that's really important for somebody to understand when you're owning your brand, you gotta know what your story and journey is and you gotta know what your superpowers are. What differentiates you? What makes you better than the rest? That's your brand and make sure that you're in a position to sell that rather than trying to be somebody you're not. Hmm. So, um, I, Perfectly honest, like I, I, something inside me is uncomfortable with the idea of thinking like, how am I better than others? Different, right? How are right? you? How do you it? differentiate yourself from others, right? Uh huh. Yeah. So that that feels much better because I spent. Yeah. How do you I, differentiate? You know, yeah. For me personally, like I've discovered pretty recently. So I, I had a, a professor on the podcast, a clinical psychologist, Ronald Siegel, who wrote this beautiful book called "The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary." And I realized through reading that book and in conversation with him that my like there was this constant energy in me of having to, of constantly comparing myself to other people and having to be, you know, who am I better than? Who's better than me? How can I get better than them? Like like everywhere I went, there was this filter. And, and, I'll, and I'm self-aware enough not to, like, make it really obvious. <laughs> but still, there was this like, you know, even in like our networking group, I'd be like, well, who's on top here and who's in the middle and who's on the bottom and where am I and how can I move up? And right. And, and so to, to think of it in terms of, you know, preferences and differences, right? Like we're all a players, 
like feels very well, beautiful. There's room for all of us to succeed. That's right, because we all bring different gifts to the to the argument, to the team, to the table. And and there really is room for all of us to succeed. I remember one of the leaders that that I saw get pushed out of an organization. He was a perfectionist and demanded perfection from himself and then demanded perfection in his team. And ultimately, it created this competition between the team members, thinking that there was only one spot at the top to be his favorite or to win the mm. next promotion. And, and that culture of fear, I mean, it caused anxiety. It was stifling. It was the opposite of innovation, right? What we're all trying to be. So I realized that there's room for all of us to succeed. And that's where diversity pays off. And diversity only pays off, right? If you're really bringing your differentiating gifts to the table, if you're trying to be like everybody else, then you're not going to have these diverse ideas if you're just a robot of others, right? Right. So that's why, you know, I've, I've been reading more and more about diversity isn't enough. You also need inclusivity. So the diverse people who are in the room are actually part of the culture and the communication and the decision making. Correct. And so, yeah, this takes a lot of work. And for those listeners, thank you for tuning in. And, and if, you know, some of the, the strategies that I recommend is really sit down with a pen or paper or, or maybe you don't have to write it out. Um, you know, maybe tell it to somebody. Just what is your story? What is the journey? What journey have you been on that makes you different? You know, what has been your significant life event? Event? What has been a real challenge in your life? And how did you overcome that? How did you grow? Because that journey makes you who you are and it allows others to connect with you. And then you can, you can use those gifts to help others. I mean, that's what's beautiful. If you, if you suppress kind of the challenges in your life and you try to appear perfect, then your perfection equals disconnection. That's what I've learned mm -hmm. too. If you're trying to portray that you're perfect, people don't really connect with you because you're just not real. Perfection equals disconnection. Mm, yeah. And I really, you know, love that point, that perspective of taking your story and even like looking at the parts that you would elide, you would naturally skip over and really bringing those out. Like, like I was in marketing for 10 years and marketers know this, that if I'm going to try to sell you on like, you're going to take my course or buy my book or something that you're only going to, you know, if I'm perfect, you have no interest in it. But when I tell you my story about how I grew up with this problem and that problem, like, you know, we, we lie, marketers lie to make it worse. Like, you know, I had seven kids and we were living in my sister-in-law's basement eating Ritz crackers and, and star brand peanut butter for five years until I discovered this, right? Like there's, it, we do that because it really works, but to, but to be able to do it authentically with your own story and say, I, I own all of this. I own my disadvantages. I own my mistakes. I own my inadvertent cruelties. And here I am trying to do better. Like that's so attractive. And that's why TED Talks have became have become so successful is there's a, a method, a format to it. And it begins with struggle. And mm. each person gets on stage and begins with their story of struggle. And then ultimately how they rose up and overcame it. 
and, and became successful and discovered something new and now is helping others. I mean, it's, it's, it's a format that we all can use. And I try to tell my leaders too, to, to do this exercise with their teammates, because not only, and this is what I've seen, I do it with my MBA students. And when they own their journeys and get up and publicly say, here's who I am. I'm Michelle Johnston, born in Alexandria, Virginia. I grew up a corporate brat. And I learned that as hard as it was moving around, I really enjoyed getting to know others, but then I lost myself. And so by going through that experience, it taught me compassion for others and other stories. And, and I became stronger as a result. And, and hearing students get up and say, this is me, this is my life and what I've gone through. And here's how I overcame whatever challenge it was. Then it, it allows the person who's owning his or her story to hold their head higher and feel more comfortable in their own skin and more confident. And then you can see the people in the room feel more connected with that person. It's, it's, there's very little room for judgment when you actually know somebody's story. And yeah. it's so much easier to judge when you're like, oh, that's Tom over there. Oh, he looks really cocky. Very arrogant, Tom. Look at Tom. Tom's from Venezuela. I wonder what the, you know, making up all these stories in your head about Tom from Venezuela. When he gets up and Tom from Venezuela then said, I grew up so poor that I had to share a bedroom with my grandmother. And I can't believe, true story. And he said, and I can't believe I'm sharing this with you, but the only reason I'm sharing this with you, because I was so embarrassed for so long, is because my grandmother just died. And now I realize I wouldn't trade that time for anything. Mm. And that mm. was a real story that a student from Central America, South America shared in front of everybody. And you could see him relax and you could see the audience go, I like this guy. I trust him. He's not just Tom from Venezuela in the corner who you're making up. Some He's a real person. Yeah. So I got to ask you, and I, you feel free to like duck the question if it's, you know, apolitical or impolitic for you. But, you know, when you talk about like these kind of cultures where we as leaders can create scenarios and cultures, and you talk about that in the end of the book about creating a culture where people can be vulnerable at the same time in the wider world, I'm seeing a huge tilt back towards command and control, authoritarianism, dictatorship. Really? Um, you know, yeah. you know, like people following politicians who are who are who are sort of anti-democratic and who their public persona is they would never admit ever having made a mistake or ever having gotten anything other than an A plus. And we're seeing this in our country. We're seeing this around the world. And I'm wondering what you think is, you know, what what are the factors that determine which style gets to be ascended because God, I would love to live in a world where everyone stands up and says, here's who I am, flawed humanity and all, we all belong. And I'm seeing so much of the other. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in my leadership class, we would not talk politics <laughs> because it just got so divisive. And instead we would continue to look at leaders who led from a kinder, more compassionate way um, and looked at the results that they got versus leaders who, I mean, you look at Jack Welch, who's no longer with us. He did a great job with General with General Electric for years and, and people idolized and looked up to him. But now people are looking back going, oh my gosh, that was kind of an abusive culture. 
Mm. Right. And so and so we don't want to repeat uh, those mistakes at all. And I do believe that what we're seeing, what the research is showing us coming out of the pandemic most recently is, I mean, just talking about quiet quitting. There are people who are saying, you know, I'm going to sit here and, and not do a whole lot unless I have a leader who I know really believes in me and I believe in what I'm doing and creates an environment that motivates me. If not, peace out. I'll get paid, but I'm just kind of phoning it in. And, and, and so the research is showing us, Howie, that at least here in America, where we are, People are craving leaders who see them. And there is a Zulu word that I just learned about that means we see you. And it's their greeting. Mm. And I think it's Sayabona, is it? Siabonga. Um, it's Siabonga. And, and it truly means not I see you, but we see you. And we yeah. see you as a whole person. And that's exactly, I believe, where we are right now in what I've, what I have seen. And I was a little scared. You you had mentioned I started my research with just the New Orleans leaders that I knew, and then after the interview, I'd say, "Do you do you have a recommendation of who I should interview next?" And then I was able to go global and broaden um, my interview base. But in the beginning, I was scared. Like, is do you think because I'm in New Orleans, this is just a New Orleans thing that I'm seeing that connection is what's driving results now? And then I thought, well, it. Is this a Southern thing? And then Howie, I started getting getting on the 100 Coaches call, which for your listeners, Howie and I are both a part of 100 Coaches, a Marshall Goldsmith group. And these are some of the very best coaches in the world. And on these Monday calls, I started you know, hearing from people from France and England and Russia, um, all over the place that this was an issue and people were now talking about the importance of true, meaningful connection. And that's when I realized, okay, this is not just a New Orleans or a Southern thing. This is a global phenomenon. And again, the research keeps supporting that. Mm. Yeah. And it's, you know, when we look at our cultures and what sort of it has become, like the hunger for connection or for belonging, as Brene Brown would put it, is so strong that I think maybe that's where some of the command and control appeal is that like, I want to, I don't know how to belong. I don't, I don't feel safe in this environment being myself. I'm not willing to go first and put, and put my vulnerabilities out there. Cause I think I'm going to get eaten like a bunch of, you know, piranhas preying on me, but the need for belonging is so great that I'm going to just basically join this cult of leaders, this cult of the leader. And at least I'll have, a toxic imitation of true community, true connection with other humans. You might be right. I haven't really put a whole lot of thought into, because my research isn't into the, the politics of it. You might be right. It, it might be easier for some personalities to say, ooh, I'm feeling a little bit vulnerable, but I know as a human, or I might not be that aware of it, but something has a need inside of me to belong. So I'm just going to join this a group of like-minded people and, and, and this leader figure is going to tell me what to do. And that feels easier. It is. I mean, to be your own individual and show up every day, this is me takes courage for sure. And, and again, I just came off of Morag Barrett's um, book launch and, and, and it's about having a friend at work and why that is mm. necessary. And that 20% of people feel like they don't have a friend and they're incredibly lonely. 
20 percent. Mm. And, and, and people are just feeling lonely and and our our social skills, you know, are 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 not as sharpened be coming out of the pandemic. Right. And so all of us are just feeling a little bit self-conscious and a little bit lonely and a little bit empty and a little bit tired. And so that's where leadership is so important now because there is pressure. I mean, it's hard to be a leader right now with what the world is throwing at us. And yet it also can be one of the most rewarding roles you will ever play is how to, how to support your people, develop your people, bring your people together and accomplish things together. That independent interdependence, not independence, but that interdependence is where the magic lies. And Hubert Jolie, who's also in our group, talks about that in the heart of business. It's it's that interdependence is where magic is. It's where the people coming together, you can do great things together, but you do have to trust one another. You have to be vulnerable. You have to take risks. And we've been apart from one another for so long now through the pandemic in a virtual environment that I think people are 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 feeling kind of trepidation about do I, especially if they're going back to the office face to face, like, whoa, this is a lot of stimulation. Can I really trust this? I uh -huh. mean, we're all feeling a lot of different emotions, you know? Yeah. And, you know, what, one thing that comes to me is like when you talked about the courage, in some sense, leaders, the higher you go, the less risk there is because you know, people are going to, you know, they're a little scared of you or they they attribute status or wisdom to you that maybe you don't deserve, but you can take some risks as a leader. On the other hand, the higher you get, the more you have to lose. So it's, it's kind of like it's a different kind of of courage to to say, OK, I'm going to go first, which is, I guess, the literal definition of a leader is the one who goes first. You are absolutely right. I'm coaching a um, a leader right now who's a brand new CEO. And man, it just, whoo, it takes a lot of emotional energy every single day to go through that transition of, of this new CEO to gain the trust. He's on a listening tour right now and, and the courage to, to just be himself as a leader rather than his predecessor, who was very different. I mean, it's exhausting, but yet again, so darn rewarding. Hmm. And the other thing that's coming to me is when you talked about going into academia and having only role models of like gruff, demanding, angry male professors, that the, the new style of leadership actually calls for people of other stripes. It's like, you know, like, like I, I sometimes think about like the people that I want to be, the politicians and the law enforcement officers in my community are the ones who don't want the job, right? It's the ones who want the job that I'm scared of, right? Who want the power. And so similarly, like if leadership is command and control, then those types of people are going to become the leaders. And we've seen what's happened to our culture and our civilization and our planet with that kind of imbalance. So like for you like for you to be as equally as strong or even more strong as a leader in a completely different model i think op opens it up for a very more divergent leadership set absolutely we just had a phenomenal leader at loyola um tanya tetlow who i profiled in my book she became mm -hmm. the first layperson at loyola as president and the first female 
and talk about a seismic shift. I mean, she had such a different leadership style than the Jesuits who who led this institution for a hundred years. And she was so effective and she absolutely owned her journey and owned her story. And she showed up in a compassionate way and she was beloved. And um, I'm on the presidential search committee now to replace her in our entire first meeting. Just, we talked about what a loss it is. She ended up taking the presidency at, at Fordham university mm. and they're really lucky to have her because she was just a phenomenal leader. And, and that was a seismic shift that we all well, Welcomed. I mean, I would see her. It's really hard to come into a faculty meeting and win faculty members over because they can be quite critical. And she was able to do it. And she did it in her own beautifully compassionate way. So, yeah, there is there. There's a way to do it. And and also the the mentors who I referred to, they weren't. I mean, yes, yeah, some of them were, were gruff, you know, but they were charismatic and I wanted to be like them. So I don't want mm. you to think there were these angry men who walked in the classroom and yelled at everybody. They just had very, very they were like military drill sergeants. You know, they had very strict ideas in their head that you had to. What is it called? Like um, in order to build everybody up, you had to knock everybody down first. Uh-huh. And it was just this this old model in their head. But yet the students adored them, loved them, and and they were super charismatic. So it just didn't work for me because I just wasn't that person. It would be like Tanya Tetlow coming into Loyola saying, I have got to, to act like all the Jesuit priests who came before me because that's the only way to be successful. And if she had mm-hmm. done that, she would have failed. And instead, she had enough confidence to come in and be truly Tanya. Mm, yeah, I, I love that because, you know, so much of the conversation about women in leadership roles over the last couple of decades has been merely about sort of numerical representation as opposed to I want women to come in and be women and not just women yes. to come in and try to be, you know, better men. Oh, my gosh. I'll never forget. I was researching with my colleague, Dr. Kendra Reed. On, we were writing a paper on high-performing teams, and there was a research article that said the number one differentiator between the highest-performing teams and the lowest was the presence of women on the team. Uh-huh. And we couldn't believe it. We're like, what? And the researchers concluded that it was if a woman is on the team and she is representing herself as a, you know, as, as a woman, not trying to be like everybody else, people behaved better. Right. And, and, and I work for a lot of hospitals. I coach a lot of hospital leaders and I can't tell you how many physicians have told me they're so tired of women showing up, trying to be like male doctors because it Mm. just, it's, it's, you know, come up and, and be, yeah, bring your, your feminine gifts. That diversity was what we need, and we're finally comfortable with that. But again, when I entered, this was 1998, and there were very few women in academia. It's 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 different today. I have a young colleague, Brittany Bauer. She's 32 years old. She was a gymnast in college. She is so smart, and she wears these beautiful dresses and these gorgeous heels, and she's got long hair, and she shows up truly feminine and smart, and she's successful, you know, it's a different generation and they're able to own it a little bit more than I think in my generation was. Mm. I mean, my closet was full of black pantsuits. I mean, that's how extreme it was, Howie. I so wanted to to be like the men that I tried everything, you know, to look like them too. And that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm also struck by like all the places in the world where this doesn't yet work 
where women are still not given a seat at the table, where women be like, and so I'm thinking like, you know, I have, I have a very com complicated relationship with like capitalism and business in general, because I see the harms it can do as well. But there's something about organizations and businesses that are, they're kind of um, experimental places for this kind of equality. And I think they're not, you know, they're not living up to it. They're not doing enough. When you look at the number of women leading startups and getting funded by Silicon Valley or the number of women in the C-suites, it's still a, a horribly small percentage, but at least like there are places you can look for these bright spots to oh, say, yeah. here's, yeah. here's where the, here's how the world can go. Oh my gosh. Over 50% of our business students are women. Over 50% of our law school students are women. And, and so I'm in these incredibly diverse classrooms where it's fantastic. And, but we do talk about, and that is a, but we do talk about, but at the very top, we're not represented like that. And we, I just ran a gender discussion in my leadership class and I put the men on one side of the room and the women on the other side of the room. And I said, okay, what are your stereotypes? When you think about women and how they communicate, what, you know, what are the stereotypes? And then, you know, the, the men said, well, they, they talk a lot, you know, and they lead with emotion and they get very emotional. And, and then the women talked about, yeah, well, the men don't listen well and all they want to do is solve my problems and not really tune in. And so if we, and, and we were able to have a robust conversation about that wasn't always the case and how can we come together? Because if, if the women are seen as better listeners, Listeners, then that can really help um, team, you know, team environments. And then if men are seen, if they can be good problem solvers, then that can help. It's really, it's the way that we frame things and the language we use to describe situations. But if you have, you know, the majority of men at the top in the C-suite who are still thinking, oh, we have, you know, one woman, but boy, she sure does. She sure is emotional and talks too much. That is, that is really not going to work, right? We need to mm -hmm. dispel all of those stereotypes and just have these conversations. Yeah. So one, one other thing that comes up for me, and when you were talking about Ben Zander, um, so in my early 20s, I was in a choir that was a pretty high level organization, and we had a very easygoing uh, conductor. And we would sing, we'd sing well, but then like we had, there was a special and they, we were going to sing with the, with the National Symphony Orchestra. And they brought in this like really high powered conductor from Europe who was going to, and he was an asshole. <laughs> and we sang our hearts out. Like we were terrified of him and we raised up to a level that we would not have reached otherwise. And I'm wondering how, how you, like there must be ways to separate, to disconnect expectations from the old command and control versus the new connection style. Um, but I think there's perceptions like, okay, this person is you know, a drill sergeant. Well, we're going to do the drills. So how, how do you think about as the kind of leader you are and the kind of leadership you um, document in the seismic shift in leadership, how do those people get the same level of expectations or, or, or higher achievement than the command and yeah, control I just tough had, guys? Yeah, I just had this, this conversation with one of my leaders who's also a CEO of a different company. And he said, you know, Michelle, he said, leadership is a lot like parenting. He said, my kids at the end of the day are a little bit scared of me and they know I have very high expectations of them and I'm going to hold them accountable. 
And they also know that I love them. And I need to do the same as, as, as a leader with the people who work for me. I, they need to know I really, really care about them as full humans. And I'm going to lean in with kindness and I demand high results. And they know that and they're, they're going to work hard for that because I care about them. So what I'm really referring to is the old command and control that, 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 that type of leader who doesn't care about you, who only cares about results and the bottom line and doesn't care about you as a person. That's what I'm talking about. You can have both mm. because connection mm. does drive results. If you feel connected at work, you have better um, psychological well-being, which then leads to higher productivity, which also leads to better teamwork, decision-making, and more innovation. So all the research points to you're going to show up as, a, as your better self if you feel more connected at work and you have a leader who sees you and sees all of you, you will work harder for that person. So I am trying to get rid of that culture of fear because a lot of leaders thought that that was how best to motivate, but it ends up, you're going to get a lot of people leaving the company. Mm. Well, I think it also relates to the, the metrics of success. So for a lot, you know, a lot of command and control companies, like the obvious thing is, oh, we're here to make money which I think le is, is less and less interesting to a lot of people as the measure of success. And so if now if you have a leader who's like, our mission is to change the world in this way or to serve this population or to bring this beauty into the world or whatever it is, that it's, it's easier, like if, if all I'm trying to do is make money, like, let's face it, like your dad probably made a lot more money for other people than he ever made for himself. Oh, my gosh. Yes. We talk about that a lot. If only there had been a bonus system or some sort of compensation <sighs> tied to what he did and there never was. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and you know, when I think about Juan Martin, the global president of Kind Bars, when I interviewed him for my book, I said, he said he's from Spain and he lives in New York City now because Mars bought Kind. And he said, Michelle, I'm about to go into my, my annual evaluation with the president of Mars. I said, oh, great. I said, you want to rehearse? So how many bars of, you know, how many Kind Bars did you sell? Did you make meet your goals? Did you exceed your goals? He said, Michelle, Michelle. He said, that is only one metric. He said, we're trying to make the world a kinder place. So another metric is how many acts of kindness were we in charge of? And we were in charge of 250 million acts of kindness. That's our mission. That's our goal, not just mm. selling kind bars. So I, I loved that too. And Juan is a beautiful example of how he's very competitive and he, he absolutely has very high expectations for his people and he also cares about them very much as full humans. And he lifted up his espresso cup, cup on our Zoom call. And he said, I, I love espresso. Europeans love espresso. My people know as the global president, when I meet with them, we have coffee together. And for the first 10 minutes of our one-on-one -on -one together, it's just personal. That's meaningful connection. And that mm. connection drives results. Yeah, I was thinking that when you mentioned uh, Morag uh, Bennett's book, um, was it you, you, me, we, where like you, the importance me, we. of a, hmm? what is it again? Yes, you, me, yeah. we, you, me, we. Um, I've got to get her on the podcast. We're trying to arrange that. Um, that having a friend at work is so important. And it's like it struck me like 
what's the purpose of work anyway? What's the purpose of these businesses? What's the, like, if, if we are, if the employees are fodder for this, like, isn't that backwards? Like, shouldn't business exist? Shouldn't anything humans do exist to better the collective, to better ourselves, yeah. to make the world a more beautiful place? And I think we're starting to see with millennials and certainly Gen Z and my kids, like, if, you know, if it doesn't make you dance, then why do it? I love that, Howie. What a great way to kind of wrap everything up. If it doesn't make you dance, then why do it? If it doesn't make you, and for the listeners, one of the things that Howie really helped me with, we were in a, a group together, is he, he encouraged me. He said, Michelle, if you want to dance, dance, right? And it sounds like such a simple thing, but for years, you know, I was, I was trying to, to kind of suppress this enthusiasm I had. <laughs> for laughing and dancing. And he finally said, why are you doing that? I said, I don't know. And so we're all on this journey, right? We're all on this journey together to really figure out what brings us joy, what makes us dance and smile. And, and it is connection. And we, it, But it's got to be intentional these days. We have mm -hmm. to show up the best version of ourselves. How do we do that? To make sure we're connected with ourselves. We know each, we know ourselves. Then you show up and you can be a really good friend to others, right? And really reach out when they're going through a bad time. We need that interdependence. That's what it's about right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a fundamental human need just in terms of, you know, the human nervous system cannot self-regulate. We can only regulate with other, which is why, which is why people are so crazy about their cats and dogs that, that there are, they're also mammals that can help us regulate when we don't have friends at work, when we don't have, um, open communication in our families. We've got Fido and Fluffy that will, will love us. And so the idea like to turn your workplace into a great big Fido and Fluffy, like places where we can be human together. I feel like oh, there's, there's real yes. healing that can go on there. Real healing. And you know, I got to give a shout out uh, when my daughter was a sophomore. So right in the middle of the lockdown. So around March of 2020, she convinced me to get a pandemic puppy and had this brilliant persuasive campaign of all the reasons why, mom, I'm gonna be going to college, you're gonna be lonely, you're gonna need a dog, it will bond us together. And then of course, you know, we get this puppy and she's upstairs online doing, you know, in her room all day and I'm stuck with this pandemic puppy. And I gotta tell you, two and a half years later, Howie, I am so grateful that I have this dog now because that was a hard time through the pandemic. And, and, you know, we didn't see many people and we were alone in our homes trying to make sense out of the world and only being able to take walks around the park. I mean, that was a hard time. And I really am so appreciative that I have little Millie Vanilli. If anybody gets that eighties reference, Millie Vanilli, uh, the lip syncing so, band. So she doesn't actually um, bark, right? <laughs> She no, just pretends to bark. She just is a lip syncer. She just pretends. She just she's a lip syncer. Um, and she and it's just you're absolutely right. We we need connection with something, whether it's with humans uh, or when we're in lockdown, whether it's with our animals. And um, 
But yeah, this, this is, this is not going away. I truly believe this hybrid environment is here to stay. I don't think we're all ever going to go back to the office full time unless you're in like, you know, a physician showing up in a hospital giving that sort of care. But if you're in a corporate position right now, the research is showing that we're going to be in this hybrid work world. So we have to figure out how to intentionally connect with others in this virtual environment and how to embed time for face to face as well. So I'm telling companies, if you're going to be, you know, where if everybody's going to be working from home, then you got to spend some money to bring people together face to face once a quarter and have these team days and team development days to establish that trust and psychological safety, because as humans, we need it. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So tell us one more time the name of the book and where people can find out more about you if they choose to. Yes, the seismic shift in leadership. It's just been a beautiful journey um, being able to be on all these podcasts like yours, Howie, Howie and talk about the seismic shift and, and can, why connection is so important. And it's the book it was number two on Amazon. It's a bestseller and you can go to Amazon or wherever books are sold. And you can go to my website to find out more about me. I'd love to hear from you. And if there's a way to contact me and that's michellekjohnston.com. Okay, and there's no E at the end of Johnston. So Michelle, that's with two correct. L's. Correct. K Johnston K for connected. <laughs> K for connected. I like that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Howie, for having me. I knew this this conversation would be robust, and but I mean, you are so smart, and you ask the coolest questions. So thank you for this engaging discussion. Well, thank you. It's, it's uh, you know, two, two thirds of being smart is knowing whose books to read. So uh, <laughs> I, love, I love that you're in my life and that we can, we can share this with the world. And I look forward to next time we connect. Thanks so much. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll see you down in, the, in, in NOLA one day. Sounds great. Look forward to that. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Check out the show notes and links to the books that we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 536. And let's see what else is going on. I'm planning another walk in the woods um, episode. Um, I got some really positive, nice, kind feedback about the last one where I just sort of strapped on a microphone and took a walk and talked about what I was reading and what I was thinking about. And it was really fun for me. And I got my steps in, <laughs> looked at my phone later. I was like, okay, good steps. So a, w a way of combining movement and podcasting at the same time. So if there are any topics you want me to talk about, my gosh, that's so much easier if you'd write me and say, hey, talk about this. Um, you know, there's things I can talk about semi as an expert, and there's things that I can find experts to talk about. But if you're just like, I wonder what Howie thinks about this, and that's good enough for you, um, then that's good enough for me as well. So you can just drop me a line, hj at plantyourself.com, or drop a comment if you're watching, if you're connecting to this via the Facebook Plant Yourself group or on the plantyourself.com website. You know, plenty, plenty of ways to reach me. You can also message me or hit me up or Twitter me at uh, ask at ask Howie at at A-S-K-H-O-W-I-E on Twitter. So movement news, tough loss last night at the 8 p.m. game for uh, for our ultimate championships. A lot of lot of um, errant throws, but we got to run hard and there weren't that many people. So it was a low turnout, which I love because then I get to run around a lot and drag my ass and feel heroic and out of breath and miserable and feel like I'm, uh, I'm really working on my, uh, my fitness and stamina. Unfortunately, getting home at 10 p.m. after a really hard game in the lights, it's very hard for me to sleep afterwards. I had a 
really iffy night of sleep. I think I was just, you know, my body was just very confused. Like, why are you expending so much energy at 930 at night? Um, garden news, we have put the row covers on which yesterday was just in time for the first frost. And today we spent some time pulling uh, trumpet vines off of the elderberries. So it's a time of kind of quiescence and cleanup. Our neighbor is harvesting his some of his sweet potatoes. They left in the ground an extra month to see what would happen after if he harvested them after the frost. And he gave us one giant, big sort of reddish purple Beauregard, which I believe has the kind of orange yellow flesh. But we're going to leave that out in the sun as much as possible to cure for a couple of weeks for all those starches to uh, begin to turn into sugars. And then I'll let him know. And uh, if I remember, I'll let you guys know as well. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious Michelle, X. Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.